0: Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where the most important question of the day is, "Have you kept elixir in?" My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. I have. Have you? I have. I did yes. for a bit, and then I, I stopped elixir in, but I've resumed elixir in. I've been nonstop elixir in, which has been pretty nice. Uh huh. Yeah. I was gonna I was gonna make a joke about us concurrently elixir in. Nice, but it didn't go anywhere. um (laughs) (laughs) what what else is new let's stand up um what's new what is new trucks uh nothing is new with the truck i have the rear brakes put back together nice and um i ordered some shocks those are on the way i got the new wiring uh so i will replace that after, um, the next job is to replace the front brakes. So the front brakes are drum brakes, uh, which they have not done in cars since the 50s. Yep. And they don't work as well as more modern disc brakes. So the next thing to do is to replace the drums with discs. So it's a somewhat major operation. Pull off all the old hardware. I have to make some new mounting brackets for the new hardware. Uh, get that put together. And then it's um, redo the brake lines and then install a new master cylinder. So there'll be pretty much an entirely new brake line when i'm done
1: it's a big refactor
0: it is and the challenge is just focusing on this and not getting wrapped up in all the other little things that i want to do at the same time nice but it's cool you know it's nice having a bit of progress under my belt getting the the rear drums polished up the shoes replaced the, the pistons the springs and all that are so all brand new
1: you, you're not sick of it yet you're just still doing it. still doing it i hope i wouldn't be sick of it already That's good. That's good. Good to hear. Yeah.
0: A guy on uh, one of the forums gave me a piece of advice, which was that um, don't rush it. Be patient. The whole thing with like vintage restoration projects is that it's about patience. Absolutely.
1: So I've been practicing that. Awesome. What's new with you? Uh, Not much. Just a lot of coding and get my head in this new problem space. Um, But things are going well. Mm -hmm. I've written a lot of absinthe graphql elixir code which has been very pleasant recently and written some react which has also been pretty pleasant so i'm in a good place i'm just like still trying to adjust to this life of like mostly coding again which seems odd for me oh and i also got my app deployed to google app engine which is a whole other thing that i was trying to do so Mm. yeah feeling good congratulations thank you
0: thank you very much So before we get to um, our esteemed guest,
1: do you want to uh, tell our listeners about the next big thing from Elixir Talk? Yeah, so I think we've kind of hinted at this a couple of episodes ago, Um, but Desmond and I have been talking about how we can help the community grow a bit more. And uh, the conclusion there from our side has been that we are going to be setting up and running um, some Elixir trainings across the U.S., uh, at the back half of this year, and probably into the next year as well. Um, it's going to be called Elixir Training.io because we're very uninventive with names, as you know from a podcast called Elixir Talk. Uh-huh. Uh, and really, the, th- we're going to be trying to target the trainings at people who have never done Elixir before. So this is like first-time people. Um, we've run kind of trainings like this at MPEX previously, and they've been really successful leaving people with a really good like understanding and, and a full set of basics about like how to use Elixir, a lot more about the language, just really arming you and priming people with the knowledge to go away and continue to uh, get into Elixir and hopefully ship some applications with it as well. So we're going to be uh, running around the country, um, but this is where we need your help. So we're actually going to be asking everyone to help us determine where we should be going on this elixir training tour it's going to be a grand tour across the u.s And yeah, we'd love your help to identify some key cities that we should be going to. Yeah, this
0: is fun because most trainings are usually attached to a conference. So you have to be at the conference to get the training and we want to bring the trainings to you. So we're looking at a handful, maybe four or five to get started for the first leg. And yeah, if you want us to come to your city, please jump on our website, which is elixirtraining.io, and give us a little information about where you're from, what you're interested in. There's gonna be one track for engineers and then there's going to be a separate training that's more for managers, engineering leaders, people who aren't as focused on the code directly, but more interested in what can this platform do for my organization? How do I hire people onto the team? How do we adopt this? into into the company how do we deal with legacy code and what kind of strategic advantages does it offer us so i don't know how many of you are listening to the podcast but we think there's two different um audiences that need to hear this stuff so um and there's not enough overlap to make it one thing so we're just going to focus on the two separate the two separate curricula
1: Mm-hmm. yeah so you'll be able to find out a bit more information on our website no prices announced just yet but we're going to be in trying uh, we're going to try and make this absolutely as cheap as possible so we're trying to maximize the number of people who can attend and who can be part of it um so hopefully we'll be able to announce some some pricing and uh get a bit more feedback from you all by next week so yeah
0: cool look so out look- for
1: that yeah that should be coming uh to
0: a town near you Later in 2019. Definitely. Which brings us to the main event. We have a very exciting guest on the show today. Uh, Maxim Fedorov has no specific title at WhatsApp. He has been working on performance and scalability. And most of you have probably heard of WhatsApp. It's a very large messaging company built in Erlang. And Maxim is at the center of that. So we want to welcome him to today's show. Hello, Maxim. Good
2: afternoon, or good morning, if you're listening in the morning. Yes, you're right that WhatsApp is the largest messaging platform, but that doesn't make WhatsApp the largest company in the world. In fact, we are still pretty small with just a few tiny development teams, and that's what makes us interested. So when you joined this company,
0: was it already, was it small? Was it smaller? Was it about the size it is now?
2: It was smaller, but not that much smaller as I would actually expect it to be so maybe it's kind of doubled in size but it's mm-hmm. not it, it is still small, this is what I like about it as well we are now a part of a bigger family, we are a part of a Facebook family and we are proud to say that but still, even within Facebook we are staying a separate entity, we still have our own terms of services and if you kind of give your phone number to WhatsApp you may be sure that currently Facebook doesn't follow you. Cool. cool. I mean th- can can you tell us about
1: how many engineers you're talking about on the teams just so we get a sense of scale if you can reveal that.
2: Uh, I probably won't tell you that but I can <laughs> okay. but I can give a hint. So Facebook is thousands of employees. WhatsApp mm-hmm. has never grown even to half of a thousand or even like a quarter of it I guess. <laughs> wow okay (laughs) i mean i'm curious if you
0: have a company like whatsapp which serves hundreds of millions of users right quite a few many zeros um was that always the intention of a firm like this and when you're starting a firm like that do you know that you're going to go big or do you just start small and then iterate as people come onto the system?
2: I'm probably not the best person to answer that. I would definitely ask you to maybe talk to uh, Brian Acton or Jan Kuhm, who were uh, the founders of the company. They will have a lot more information. But so far, I know that WhatsApp as as a company, as a firm, as a team, has been concentrating on the user experience So we have just one thing that makes us different from other messengers. Our messenger works everywhere in all the conditions. And it was so much of a nice feeling to get those emails telling, hey, I was buried under the wrecked building in Mexico when the earthquake came. Nothing worked. No SMS, no phone calls. But somehow you still worked. And I've been rescued because it worked. So this is what makes us work. This is what makes us better. This is... How we get the pleasure of actually, I don't know, implementing the thing that we know, connecting the world, helping people to to connect, to talk to each other, to stay in touch. Even if you are on a different hemisphere, even if you have a different time zone, which could be a problem for us because you don't really want to wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> but still, we are allowing people to connect and to talk and to cooperate.
0: That's cool. Cause I think a lot of communications platforms these days can get a bad rap of like, Oh, it's just another way to share cat pictures. But really like communication is uh, kind of central to how we work as a species. And if you look at some of these emergency situations, like you said, if there's an earthquake and someone's buried underneath a building, having I would say, a modern communication system that could be counted
1: on to work uh, changes history. So, I I mean, I think Desmond alluded to this, but uh, I saw a recent talk of yours, Maxine, which said that there's 1.5 billion users on WhatsApp, right, Um, which is quite a lot. And uh, I'm sure it's somewhat higher than that now. It would, I know that was a year ago. I won't ask you about exact numbers, but um, can you tell us a little bit about what it
2: takes to serve that many users at scale? That's an interesting question. Uh, a year ago, I would probably say that it takes approximately, well, not a year, half a year ago, I would say that it takes approximately 10,000 servers to do that work. Uh, we have been changing numbers down and back up again. So I'm not entirely sure how much it is in terms of a server footprint. As for people footprint, I said we are reason- reasonably small. I would say we are a small team. We are still productive. So we can roll out big things. What helps us to do that is actually first, we think about our users. So we don't roll out features that are halfway usable or not usable at all we don't introduce something that is not going to be actually used by our users what we are good at we are good at very basic messaging we are the best messaging service so you can kind of expect us to work for either text messages pictures videos it is just fine and this is what we are concentrating on this helps us to serve
0: and so, how does Erlang play into this? Like, is there what's this, Is there anything that Erlang lets you do that other languages don't that enable these kind of features?
2: I would say yes, because Erlang is the language, and Erlang uses the beam virtual machine. They both work together in a very nice duet. So, how it helps us? First, it is interesting. But it protects our own developers from shooting themselves in the lag because it actually doesn't let you to for example share a state easily if you do that via an ads table or any other mean it kind of warns you hey you are probably doing something wrong because you have to use something that is not a language construct you have to use a library and ads library or something like that. So this is probably one of the quite important things. The other thing is the built-in concurrency. So you can actually run hundreds of thousands and even millions of processes on the same server machine, which gives us a question, how many users can be connected to a single machine? How many TCP connections is it possible to have? How many... uh, people talking to each other can fit on a single server? Mm. There is no simple answer to that question because it turns out that people are actually quite different. For example, uh, some people prefer to send text messages. Some people are actually fine with recording audio messages. And some people really like to forward New Year's Eve pictures. And one picture may be easily forwarded a few million times or even a few dozen million times. Erlang helps us to uh, keep up with all these streams. To uh, well, to organize the way we think, to code the intent, not the our not 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 our understanding of what we want to do, but the actual intent. So we have a message from the user. We want to send the message to offline storage. And this is exactly how it works in Erlang. So you get a message, you send it to a process, a process does something and stores in some storage. So it has Mm -hmm. a semantic that we want to use and that helps us to bring our thinking process in a shape where we can understand, yes, this is what we need. This is very different from other languages. For example, most languages have a concept uh, of RPC, that is, Remote Procedure Call. It is interesting that Erlang doesn't have that concept. It has uni-directional, unidirectional message sends. For example, if you want to have a call, it's basically like simulated with two messages and the timeout between these two. This is, again, different from other languages, where you have to be very explicit that you want to make a call. And it's always a call. It's never a cast. So Erlang makes you think differently. And it fits our purpose well, because it has been developed for uh, uh, telecom and networking. What we do is exactly telecom and networking. Think of it as, an, as a cellular operator, maybe the largest in the world, of course. Mm-hmm. So, gosh, there's a bunch of questions I want to ask about. Know, okay, saying. so if you
0: have a user come on, like, do you spin up a process to represent that user? Is every user a process in your system?
2: Correct. Every user spawns a process in the system. It used to be two processes before, but then uh-huh. we realized, okay, we can cut it out a little bit. And we carved one of these two processes. And so you're sharing these processes
0: across your entire cluster and you have a large cluster.
2: Uh There is a presentation, one of my talks at, I think that was Code Mesh in 2018 in November, that explains the gist of our cluster. So we have so-called meta cluster. Our users are connecting to one Erlang distribution cluster called chat cluster. So that is the cluster where people actually sort of globally register it in a special registration cluster that's called session cluster. So when a user connects to our chat cluster, first thing that happens after authentication, obviously, uh, there is a record added to our session cluster. And then Mm -hmm. all the nodes, if any node needs to send a message to the process that represents the user, it gets that uh, process ID from the session cluster, and then it knows, okay, this user is mapped there. So we don't have a globally shared replicated state for users. Instead, we use a separate, we call it tier, a separate tier of machines that just keeps uh, the mapping between the user process and the actual physical server that is on.
0: And so it, at that scale, I have never operated on a cluster of anything near that scale. But I'm told, or I've, I've read that... Um, beyond 80 or so nodes or 100 nodes, like the, the network chatter becomes kind of overwhelming. And um, Erlang wasn't really designed to run on more than 80 nodes. Uh, and yet you're up in the thousands. So what what is that like? Do you have to do anything special to cut down on network traffic or optimize the way that you send data
2: over the network? Or does it mostly just work? Frankly, it mostly just works. It's not the network chatter that creates the problem. It's the service discovery problem. So imagine, as you just said, you want to find out uh, what is this server that the user is connected to. If you just uh, split some functionality of chat the server, for example, if you want to store address book somewhere, This is not going to be stored on the chat server. This is going to be stored in a separate cluster. And then you need to find out, okay, which physical machine actually serves that user in that different cluster. So Mm -hmm. here it makes it difficult because now you need some service discovery mechanism that tells you, okay, this physical machine stores data for this user. Mm -hmm. Mm, We had to, I would say, re-implement PG2 sort of break it in a way. So now it's instead of a a globally replicated state, it now shares the state between just two machines that are connected to each other. There is no need to take global locks on the entire 10,000 machines if only two machines want to exchange information about services that one machine provide to another. So that's Mm -hmm. that's our secret, I would say. And it has been presented at Codebeam as well and Codemesh too. And even if you look further away in 2012 and 2013, there were a bunch of nice presentations from Rick Reed, who is the father of the architecture and just one of the greatest men that I've ever worked with. Rick, if you're hearing this, yes, we still love you here at (laughs) WhatsApp.
1: Well, we'll uh, put a link to those in the show notes as well, so you can all go and watch those, but... uh... Yeah. I so is the entire stack still Erlang? Is there other are there other languages running inside like I I know this is
2: somewhat of a naive question but yeah, just curious. Since we are now a part of a big Facebook family, oh yes, we have a variety of languages. We I think have everything that you can think about. So, <laughs> obviously C and C++ and Erlang itself is written right. in C. Yeah. So there are other languages that are widely adopted within Facebook. I'm pretty sure you can find Python scripts in our database. Uh, There is obviously some PHP and even the initial implementation of WhatsApp website was in PHP. And I think it's still in PHP, but we are using yours, which is purely your link server to actually serve that stuff.
1: Hmm. Wow. Okay. So there is a mix. Right. Uh, And were you always doing Erlang or or was WhatsApp the first place where you've uh, started, you know, dabbling
2: in in Erlang? I had a few toy projects, but these were toy projects, as I said. uh, When I joined WhatsApp, I obviously had to learn it uh, a lot more in details and obviously deeper. And at some point I realized, okay, it is now time to actually change it, to make it fit our needs better, and share what we have with the community. That was one of the steps that we decided to uh, take part in the foundation, the Erlang ecosystem foundation. And we are considering it as a big improvement for the entire community that will unite Erlang, Elixir, and all the languages that are based on Beam technology. So
1: does this mean that you've been running kind of, uh, forked versions of otp
2: and things like that over the time over the years correct we have our own whatsapp patched fork of that we have been upstreaming some of these patches some of these patches are controversial, so i am not sure if otp team even wants to hear about those (laughs) (laughs) but yes we are trying to converge we are trying to share our knowledge and our software technologies with the community
1: um
0: go go Desmond. do you what's it like to hire people i mean you said you knew some erlang but you mostly learned it on the job and you didn't just learn erlang you learned it at scale on the job um do you get a lot of applicants that know erlang um or do people want to learn i mean we hear from people running companies now that say oh well how am i going to find how am a going to hire for this team? And there's a question of what does it mean to train someone up in this technology? Um, what's that, I mean, what's that been like at WhatsApp?
2: Hmm. Probably I would say that I now know two, maybe three persons who knew Erlang before joining WhatsApp. The rest never tried any Erlang before, wow. but they are all bright people. They are probably the best of their breed. So they can learn, and they can learn quickly. And Erlang makes it so easy. The initial attempt to learn Erlang, it's so easy. After you understand how to do a loop using the recursive function call, the rest, yeah. the rest is really easy. But there are some difficult topics, unfortunately. They are not Erlang itself, but that's OTP libraries that people usually, well gets lost about I would say this whole right. fault tolerance the whole supervisioning thing it is a complicated concept i mean it is a, it is an easy concept but it's it's difficult to actually understand and start start following these concepts if there is a developer that can understand the concept then there is no longer a problem to write any erlang code
0: still it's pretty wild to me that not only have you managed to scale up this application with a small team of engineers, It was a small team of engineers that didn't have a lot of experience with Erlang.
2: That, to me, is pretty wild. I would say this is all because initially WhatsApp hide only the brightest engineers of their kind. The foundation that they built is still working for us. I can easily find some code from 2011 or even, I don't know, 2009 probably that still works and it has no need for replacement so Mm -hmm, that's probably my word for startups if you are going to implement something that you think is going to be the best thing in in a few years please hire the best engineer you can you can hire even if you hire just one instead of two that will be not only more productive but also more future-proof and in general just better i think
0: that's great advice so tell me what it's like to
2: deploy at WhatsApp. Hmm. Well, that <laughs> is interesting. <There> are, uh, <laughs> as every company at scale, there are several processes that we may potentially use. So the simplest one is do nothing. It will deploy it for you automatically. Mm-hmm. We have most of our services done this way for some services, there is some amount of manual work. But basically, uh, looking through um, a list of commits and finding out if there is anything suspicious or if there is anything that, that needs to be done manually. Like, for example, for there may be something in Erlang, we do hot code loading for some of our services. Not for all of them, but for some of these. We used to do hot code load for all the services, but now we found out that it's not really necessary to use this super powerful technique for everything. We just need to use it whenever it's, whenever it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And if we do hot code loading, then there may be a specific order in which these modules must be loaded. In this case, uh, a person who actually does the deployment just specifies this order in sort of a simplified Erlang OTP release. But then it is mostly automated because if something happens, we, are, we have a sophisticated monitoring system which will warn us if there is anything wrong happening. And even for services that needs restarts, if there is a problem during restart, the restart will automatically stop. We will get some warning messages, some errors. And after we solve it, we can continue, or oh, we can just, in, in, just do it once again. Because
0: you're running a stateful service. I mean, you have all these users connected to the system. You can't drop their calls when you are deploying. So uh, hot upgrades are kind of a necessity
2: for something like what you're doing. In a way, yes. But also, it's not necessarily true for uh, things like not phone calls, for example. Like text messaging, a person cannot notice if his phone or her phone reconnected while the message was being sent or delivered. Hmm.
0: Yeah, there's, I mean, the chatter in the Erlang, I'm sorry, the Elixir community is that hot upgrades are a thing, but they are too complicated, so don't bother to use them. And something, something, use Kubernetes instead. And I don't know, I've always thought that, like, using Kubernetes is not simple. And so if you're going to put the effort into learning how to use something and building out this infrastructure... Just learn how to do an upgrade, which is not that complicated. I mean, I guess it can be. But in general, it's not that complicated once you know how they work.
2: In general, you don't even need to do a full OTP upgrade or full release cycle. You can listen to a good talk by uh, Richard Carlson from CodeBeam two thousand eighteen. That's called The Art of a Live Upgrade. Mm-hmm. And they are not using OTP releases as well. So technically, you can just... Override beam files with the new copies of it and then do the hot code loading without generating all these application update files, release update files. It's just a very simple thing. But okay. the developers have to be mindful and careful, so they need to understand that it's possible to run two versions of code and if you're receiving a message That's generated by the previous version of code because half of your machines are upgraded and half of your machines are not. You need to handle both cases. Mm -hmm. So this is what we teach our developers to do, and that works pretty well.
1: Can you tell us about what have been some of the biggest challenges that you've faced at WhatsApp during your time there? So, uh, I mean... Mm -hmm. I guess from us from the outside, obviously we're using WhatsApp and everything always seems great and the service seems pretty stable, but I'm sure running a cluster of like 10,000 nodes must have its challenges at times.
2: Uh, Frankly, I would say that the most difficult challenge that I would say is kind of still ongoing is transitioning from a very stable uh, situation when we were running our own hardware well, not our own, but uh, hardware provided by as, as an infrastructure as a service thing. So we had machines with Erlang nodes that were running for years without any restarts. Because FreeBSD is a very stable operating system. Erlang R16 was a very stable release except for a few bugs. <laughs> so <laughs> we did have a few machines with uptime for 700 days or even 800 days or so. And it's very different from the way it is run now, not just Facebook, but I guess it's the common um, thing between all the companies that uh, virtualized environments are used. And there the virtual machine is quite cheap, so it restarts often, it goes down often, and you need to do... A very different way of thinking of how do you handle this. So before we were thinking more about hot code loading. Now we can think, okay, so this kind of hot code loading makes it very complicated. Maybe we should just restart 2000 machines because it's easier. And now we care for a different thing. Instead of uh, thinking how to do hot code load, we think, okay, so we are going to restart that amount of machines. What do we monitor in that case? And how do we ensure that it all goes well? And how do we ensure that our startup procedure or shutdown procedure is performed correctly?
0: Mm-hmm. hmm. Right.
1: Wow. And is this a globally distributed service as well? Are we talking about uh, many different data centers? Correct. Wow. Has that introduced different challenges as well then?
2: I would say yes, but it wasn't as difficult as moving from uh, like a very stable environment to an environment where everything moves at once because Facebook has a lot of developers, has a lot of data centers. The physical machines have different characteristics, have different CPUs, even different amounts of RAM. So that's what makes it complicated. All the moving parts, they are moving all together. You cannot stop the world from moving. You have to adjust to to live in that environment. So that's a challenge. Mm. Wow.
1: And uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, the kind of data store that operates behind the scenes there as well? So I, I heard at some point that there was am- amnesia.
2: Is that is that still true? It used to be true. Now we use a Facebook infrastructure to store our data, which is not okay. using Asia, and it's not written in Erlang.
1: That's a shame, but, but I, before that, it was all um, amnesia, and I, I'm, I, I heard that it was like probably one of the biggest distributions of it going at some point. But
2: yes, and I believe it was either the biggest or one of the biggest distributions ever ever existed.
1: Wow, it's cool. Can can you talk about the size of that? Was it like a few terabytes or something, or? Larger.
2: I don't have the numbers, and even if I had them, I am not sure if I can share that.
1: Okay, that's fine. <laughs> totally fine.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Um, so you've never used, like, Postgres or anything behind... Um, or Cassandra, I guess, something a little more high-performance
2: behind the scenes. I would say that major. Nature- if you patch it properly and we did it for our 16 is at least as performant as Cassandra or any other database that, that we know about. Yeah.
0: Except in a world where you're constantly turning off the service, then amnesia looks more scary and it's easier to say, Oh, we have our Postgres instance that's running over there and it's always up. Now it's, I guess going to be slower because you have to go over the wire. Um, But it's, it's, it's interesting talking to people like you and hearing about your architecture, and it's like, well, of course we just use Amnesia. It's fine. It's fast. It's right there, and it 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 starts to expose biases that those of us coming from a web development background um, mm-hmm. have, and it's it's kind of an awkward feeling because we have this sense of like, well, but why don't you just? Is it safe to do that? And it's like, yeah, it's it's probably safe. I mean, that's why they were built. <laughs> they didn't build these things to be uh, clumsy and unreliable but I just have a hard time mapping that to how I think about building apps these days
1: right I mean evidently it was safe if it was power in the entirety of whatsapp for quite some time as well right like I think we yeah. can draw a conclusion <laughs> a there. point
2: yeah the good thing about Nasure and Erling only approach is that you have the full control over it. You have the entire source code, including FreeBSD source code. So if there is something wrong happening, you can take a peek and find the bug in FreeBSD, which we found a lot though. So same from NASIA. If something doesn't make you happy, then go dig the source code, find out what's wrong with that, fix it, and be done with it. For Postgres, it's different. There will be some moving parts, for example, are you going to upgrade your Postgres? What happens if you upgrade it? Oh, you're, uh, the next time you call it, and it's like a 2x performance regression, but what happened? How do we find that out? So it is a world of moving pieces. Mm-hmm. Yes, now we are in this world, but still these pieces are moving a little bit slower, I guess, than for say Kubernetes or Amazon Web Services, because there you don't even have an access to source code of that thing.
1: Right. That's a good point.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I can't say I've ever patched an operating system. I've found a bug in one. But, um, I mean, the idea of operating at a scale where you're regularly running into just, like, normal hardware glitches. I mean, they say that if something happens one in a million times and you have billions of users, then the thing will happen several times in a day. So, <laughs> it's not a scale that I'm used to. It sounds, it sounds well, fun. I mean... So, do you, like, sleep well at night, knowing that all the stuff is humming along? Do you ever worry that it's going to come crashing down or there's something that you've missed or something won't perform as you
2: expect? There is, again, a perfect talk of 2013, I think, by Rick Reed again. He explained that there are a few days and one night in the year that makes us a little bit scared. The night is the New Year's Eve, obviously. Because mm. exactly at 12 o'clock, everyone wants to send a message. And if it's India, everyone wants to forward a couple of pictures. Hmm. The other one that we used to be scared about was uh, football championship in Brazil. We could easily tell, okay, now someone scored because like it's 3x amount of messages or, or some amount of messages.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We are not scared anymore because we have access to more resources within Facebook. So we can afford some more machines than we used to. And now, with more and more automation, it seems like most of these issues are in the past. Still, if something happens, I can sleep well, knowing that if something happens, the phone will ring, and we will all fight together.
0: So um, when you have these surges of traffic, do you have like spare capacity lying around that you would uh, just soak up these unexpected spikes? Or do you like have auto scaling that just
2: throws more capacity at it when you notice traffic going up? This is where Erlang shines, by the way. Erlang has a better concept. It's called a queue. Mm -hmm. So if something happens like that, we queue up the messages, we process them as soon as spike goes down so you just kind of
0: wait for the spike to pass you don't try to contain the spike
2: most spikes are really short there is for example one interesting spike when all the phones wake up at the same second and they try to connect grab messages and deliver them thanks Google right. for that <laughs>
0: Uh huh. Wow. That's cool. That's I remember doing load testing at my last company, and you could just see these very clear steps where um, we would add a CPU or add a chunk of RAM, and it's like, oh, well, now your capacity is just this much more. But then the more that you, the more traffic you hammered at the service, um, it just wouldn't. It just wouldn't respond any. It wouldn't crash. It wouldn't respond any faster. It, it might degrade a little bit, but its ability to handle the load was very stable. Um, and it, it was not a load testing or performance graph that I have seen that much.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm guessing in a service like WhatsApp, you've ironed out a lot of the bottlenecks in, 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 where they used to exist, right? Like processes that had bottlenecks around message passing and things like that.
2: Oh, yes. It was... Well, it is still one of the uh, kind of challenges that we have on a day-to-day basis because it is right. easy to uh, find out if there is a bottleneck with, say, CPU or network or RAM. But sometimes mm. it's a little bit more complicated, and uh, it may be caused, for example, by like a misbehaving something in the middle, or even something that's we cannot even think about or we control about. For example, earthquakes, we don't control those. It can still happen, and it will reveal some sort of a bottleneck or some sort of a narrow pipe that we have. Or it could be a tree falling on some uh, optical line, and then we have another interesting issue.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm guessing that's happened, as you're referencing it <laughs> at some point. <laughs> it sounds like an interesting problem
2: to have to deal with. We are now a lot more resilient than we used to be. Now we have multiple data centers and things like that. So we may even sleep better through the night knowing that, okay, something is broken somewhere, but we are still working. We are delivering messages. We are just fine. We will wake up in the morning and fix the thing if it's broken. Amazing.
1: So I have to ask, uh, what's your perception of the Elixir community inside of Erlang as well? Like We, we actually don't speak to too many uh, pure Erlangers on the podcast, so just curious about that.
2: I don't actually think these are two distinct languages. They are based on the same platform, they use the same Beam technology, they have somewhat different syntax... They have some, I would say, uh, minor differences, but they are still using the same concepts. They are still using the same libraries. You can even cross-compile some of that stuff. Uh, and I would say there are no distinct communities. There's no Elixir or Erlang. It's just something that we're all together. It's it's, it's, a, it's a big community. What I see that it, 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 it looks like as if uh there are more younger companies using elixir maybe because the the entire language is a little bit more modern it's not as i would say mature as erlang but then i would say it's younger and it progresses faster than erlang at the moment but still it's the same platform it's the same foundation Even if it's called Erlang foundation, (laughs) it doesn't mean it's purely Erlang, it's also Elixir. Or even if it's called Elixir, that doesn't mean it's purely Elixir, it can be used within Erlang. So do do you have any Elixir code at WhatsApp? Or is everything Erlang still? At WhatsApp, we don't have any Elixir. And we don't even have to plan introduce anything Elixir, just because it is another language. And in the world that we are in, it is better to unify things other than totally. yeah bring more things in. No, that makes sense.
1: What about yourself? Have you uh, played around with Elixir as a, as a different syntax to the
2: language that you use every day? I would say that I've been mostly meeting it, uh, trying to Google for something, trying to find a solution for a problem. For example... Uh, I do like the Jose's GenStage library and the ideas yep. behind it and unfortunately Erlang lacks that one mm. but it's easy to use it because it is all built on beam so if I want to use it I'm free to do that.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Nice. So uh, so does that mean that you have something similar to that at WhatsApp or like something similar to like a GenStage-esque kind of Uh, demand-driven queue or anything like that?
2: We have uh, a different approach uh, to that thing. So uh, we mostly push demand rather than pull it, as in GenStage. And then we have a way to, well, I would say some sort of manual circuit breakers. Mm -hmm. It's just something that historically evolved, It works well for us and it doesn't need any replacement at the moment. Mm,
1: That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's a hallmark of a good system, right? Like I think it evolves over time and it gets better. You're clearly building on top of, as you said earlier, some very well-established patterns in the code base and very well thought through architecture. And uh, clearly that served WhatsApp very well up till now. and, And clearly those patterns are enabling it to scale into user numbers that most of us can can't even ever imagine you know so i think it's a testament to uh the work of people who've been there before and clearly people like yourself that is able to do that
2: totally agree
0: mm-hmm.
1: do you ever like show up to conferences uh
0: for other programming languages or other technologies and you kind of look around and you're like these unwashed masses not using erlang for their large-scale systems uh what must that be like
2: I did attend different conferences before. That was mostly for C++ and uh, like other different languages. I have never thought about unwashed masses or anything like that. <laughs> because I actually see value in all the languages and I'm happy to do stuff in pure C. For example, the Beam itself, the ERTS, the Erlang runtime system that powers all Erlang and Elixir service, services and servers. Uh, it's written in the, I would say, old style C, and I still enjoy making patches to that thing. So I don't really see any problems with using a different language. I wouldn't, I would even write some assembly if I need to. So how much,
0: how often do you get
2: into the the VM itself? Well, it depends on, uh, well, it depends on what you mean by that. So VM itself, uh it's hard to draw a line. For example, there is so-called native inbuilt functions SNFs, right. that are operating mm-hmm. with files, networks, and so on. Is it a stepping to VM or not? Um I would say no. I'm thinking more like, do you
0: do you ever tweak schedulers directly? Do you ever tweak memory management directly? Um I mean I'm assuming that you pass different flags to the VM to set process limits or um tune the garbage collector or something, but like, how often do you, how often do you have to tweak the VM
2: to get your service to perform the way you want it to? I would say that nowadays it's less and less necessary. We still may want to introduce some bits, for example, uh, profiling. I would say that Erlang needs a little bit more about profiling tools. I have introduced my own, again, toy library for, uh, I would say, performance measurements and benchmarking. Mm-hmm. That's called EarlPerf. Perf. You can find it on GitHub. It's a very basic and simplistic one. But still, it answers most questions like, hey, what's faster? List comprehension or lists map function called with a function object? It is a very important question. We had uh, quite heated debates over it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but. As for beam itself I would say the I would prefer not to touch it at all because it's an amazing piece of technology and the only uh, problem with that could be our inability to understand how it works and why it does this thing that way or that thing this way. We may want to add some monitoring capabilities, for example, Uh, like right now, Erlang and Beam itself is missing a very simple statistics, how many messages my process have received over the lifetime or over the last five minutes. So yes, if we need that, yes, we go and patch Beam to actually have that information. But otherwise, we don't really need a lot of uh, tweaks for performance Mm -hmm. things. We may want to dig into Beam to find out why there was a regression. For example, there was a regression in OTP22 that was quite unexpected uh, because the message was, oh, we have sped up your ordered set tables. Now they are a lot more concurrent and performant we tried it we turned the read write concurrency on and we experienced 10x performance degradation so what happened oh because they didn't measure they didn't measure the function that features the size of the table and we use it quite often
1: uh. hmm. does that mean you run do you ever uh, get access to any of the like kind of pre-release versions of OTP or anything like that and you run those in in your clusters before before you kind
2: of make these upgrades. You have that access too because it's open source and it's published on GitHub. So yes, of course we do that uh, pre-screening for release because it makes it easier if we find a bug before OTP is released. Then we can file it, we can talk to your OTP team, convince them, hey, that's that's a bug, you need to fix (laughs) it. (laughs) Or even present a patch uh, fixing the bug. So when it is released, it is much more difficult to fix something so yes we do that pre screening testing hmm.
1: right i i i'm more meant on a case of like do you have a more of a special relationship with with the the team who are writing otp obviously like y- you have to be the biggest distribution of erlang outside of ericsson at this point right i think that's probably unequivocal like seemingly but um so I, I was wondering if there's anything there where you you know you've talked about contributions but is there anything more that you
2: do there uh, i would not say so we are one of the users of Erling, but we are always happy to help ericsson team and we are always welcoming everyone to well join us if you know how to <laughs> develop software we are hiring by right. the way yes <laughs> and uh we are trying to build more relations with OTP team because it's beneficial for both of us.
1: Right. That makes sense. Well, Maxime, it's such a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I'm sure Desmond and I could just ask you questions for like the next few hours. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it it's so fascinating hearing people who are running such a large and old and just clearly like <clears throat> incredible distribution of Erlang out in the wild. That's, that's powering so much of something that most of us probably use today as well. So, um, absolutely incredible to have you on the show and thank you for putting up with our questions as well. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not always easy to know what questions to ask when you
0: yourself has not worked on a service that has a billion know, yeah users.
1: It's, it's just so out of our realm of understanding you know and i i know all the primitives still apply and like every the way that you build systems is largely very similar it's just that that the the scale differences are just enormous from what what desmond and i mostly Mm -hmm. talk about so thank you so much for giving us your point of view on that as well
2: yeah it was my pleasure
1: well chris shall we wrap We should. Uh, Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode, as always. Uh, If you have any questions or comments or anything that you'd like to ask us about, uh, you can do that on our Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk. You can also open up a question on our GitHub page, uh, and we may or may not answer that on a future show. Um, That's github.com forward slash Elixir Talk, forward slash Elixir Talk. And if you just open up a new issue on there. Um, And then as always, ratings and reviews are most appreciated. So wherever you're getting this podcast today, please click on that rating button or the like button or whatever kind of button that they offer you. And uh, if you could tell your friends about the podcast as well, that'd be most appreciated. Um, But as always, thank you so much for listening. And thank you very much for Maxime for joining us on the show today. And uh, we're going to do the outro bit now, Maxime. So I hope you're ready. Ready? Keep elixir Keep Keep elixir Yes! (laughs) 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 Not really.